0: please open your bible to deuteronomy chapter 10 deuteronomy chapter 10 high school pastor to the stars josh petrus asked me to finish a small task this evening i'm supposed to finish teaching the old testament no seriously so i hope you brought your pillows and blankie because this is going to be a 34-hour sermon we can do it i purposefully wore a pullover sweater to help me control not my body temperature but my preaching time eventually if i preach too long in a sweater like this i will have to stop because i will die (laughs) sweaty duncan will die I don't want to get bogged down I want to help you see this story and I think the framework I want to use is in Deuteronomy 10 if there is one verse I could point you to that will show you what the Old Testament is about now that we've learned God as creator and man as rebel sinner I want you to see the heart of God in what he requires and I think that's best shown to us in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me read to you this text starting in verse 12. Deuteronomy, it's like five books into your Bible. There at the beginning, chapter 10, verse 12. This, for me, is an adequate summary of what God wants. Deuteronomy ten twelve. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. Even you, above all peoples, as it is this day, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no more. This is the very word of the living God. The Old Testament creeps people out. There are laws and regulations everywhere. There are stories that are complexing and difficult that don't have easy moral lessons in them. I could give you so many examples, but you could just turn your Bible open to anywhere in the first half or poke the person next to you and say, what do you know about the Old Testament? And I promise you, you could come up with something weird. Even familiar stories that you know, Samson, David and Goliath, you read them and often the Christian is scratching his head going, how does this relate to my life? Here's the thing though, all scripture is inspired by God and all scripture is profitable, useful for the believer. And the Old Testament's neglect has only led to impoverished, weak, emaciated, starving kind of Christians. A kind of Christian with only a, a third of their Bible at their disposal. Well, two thirds of the Bible sits unused and neglected because it seems to have too much death in it, and too much blood in it, and too many rules in it, and it doesn't seem relevant. And so tonight, I'm going to try to show you the story of the Old Testament where we left off. And I want to do that by Deuteronomy chapter 10, mostly in verse 12, to explain to you this pressing question that I think every one of us ought to answer tonight. And it's this, what does God expect? What is it that he expects? What does he want? What does he require? What's God after with all of this stuff? you understand how important expectations are, how important requirements are. You go to school or you go to school at your kitchen table. Either way, you have requirements, expectations, things you have to learn, tests you have to take, you get that. The ultimate expression of expectations is, what does God possibly want from us? If He is holy and awesome and eternal, and we are mere sinful creatures plunged into rebellion by our first parents, what is it that He wants? Well, I think the answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12. But how did we get here from there, there being the Garden of Eden? There being the banishment of man. Well, let's review. There was one person that God made, and his name was? You guys are doing great. You're paying good attention. But that was the weakest answer I've ever heard. There was one person that God made there at the beginning, made of dirt and made of spirit. His name? That's really, really good. And Adam really had one commandment. Don't eat that and he broke it from adam you would see a display of god's grace because adam didn't die and from him if you keep reading it would show you that all the nations came from adam and eve the beginning chapters of genesis unfold and nations are scattered everywhere and they act just like adam acted they're sinful they're murderous they're treacherous until finally God has had enough and you're only six chapters into the Bible and God chooses to destroy the entire world because of the vastness of their depth of iniquity. And God chooses to save one man and seven family members. His name? You're doing so good and we're already six chapters into the Bible. God floods the earth and then Rescues Noah's little family in the ark of salvation. The waters subside, and Noah doesn't have a bunch of laws or regulations. He lives by his conscience. He lives by what he learned from those who went before him. And he preserves the human race, and God makes a promise to never flood the earth again. He'll never destroy in a cataclysmic global flood. And from Adam's little family come more nations. And this time, there seems to be a move towards unity but the problem is it's godless And so they decide to build a tower in honor of the supremacy of humanity instead of the supremacy of God. The same problem we had in the garden. People aren't centered around God, they're centered around self. And so they build a big giant tower in honor of their own names. And God looks down and sees it again and judges them by confusing their languages. And now there isn't just one nation uh, unified with a common tongue, but they're scattered all over the earth speaking all these languages. They learned to speak Japanese and they learned to speak Espanol and they learned to speak French, exactly, and other wonderful languages. And God is merciful because he gives them this gift of life and he continues to show them. And now he won't work just through uh, this nations generally anymore like he did in those early chapters. Instead, now he will work through one man. And so he finds a man, one man, out of all those confused nations, Who isn't a God-fearer, who isn't someone special, who doesn't have some kind of credentials. Instead, he comes from a place called Ur, and he worships the moon. Do you know what his name was? You're doing so good. Abraham is this one chosen man And God reveals himself to Abraham And God makes a promise A deal, a covenant with Abraham And he promises him three things Abraham, you will have land And people And be a blessing to all the earth And now the Old Testament story Continues to be fulfilled But no longer generally working through nations He works through Abraham's descendants And Abraham has one chosen and special son except he kind of had two sons. Because remember, people just can't do right. They keep disobeying God. God promises Abraham this wonderful trifold promise of people, land, and blessing. And Abraham decides to do it the wrong way. And now he has two sons instead of one, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac has two sons. The promise flows through him. And the two sons' names are Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. What are their names? I'm kidding. Dan, Naphtali, Asher. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I only can do those three. There's one son that you know, though. And he had a really fancy coat. And you did a school play about him. Technicolor Dream Coat. His name? Joseph. Half of you were right. Half of you said something else. Did you say Aslan? Wrong book. So Joseph has the coat and he's the favorite son of Jacob. And from Joseph, God will preserve the descendants of Abraham because the brothers don't like his kind of snooty dreams. They kick him in the pit and he gets sold off to Egypt and he becomes a big deal in Egypt. Do you remember this story? And God uses him to preserve his family. Seventy family members will end up in Egypt and they will be neighbors and co-residents and have an important role in this massive superpower called egypt and then a pharaoh will die and another pharaoh will die and another pharaoh will die and eventually egypt will treat these people israel's descendants like slaves and so the Israelites, the people who know God, who have His law, that they receive from Moses, they haven 't have Moses yet, that, they, that they're going to receive from Moses, they, they have this, this time in Egypt that turns into awful slavery for all these years of a captivity they're, they're there under Egypt's thumb, being oppressed and being tortured by this, but they're growing numerous and God is blessing them because back in the day, they got really good real estate called Goshen. And now Egyptians are working hard as slaves and they're getting extremely buff. And so eventually a Pharaoh is like, there is way too many of those Hebrews. We need to stomp them out, kill all their firstborn sons. And then there's one bold lady who decides to defy the Pharaoh, the most important and powerful man in the universe at that time. And she says, I'm not going to obey. And so she gets this cute, fat little baby and puts him in a basket. And his name is? I know I messed up the story and gave you that one for free, but you still get points for it. So Moses is in the basket, he's preserved, he becomes part of the Pharaoh's family, and he lives his life in 40-year increments. His first 40, he lives in the palace like a king, but he knows he's a Hebrew because his mother's his nursemaid. And then one day he sees one of his Hebrew brothers being abused and being beaten, and so Moses decides to, and he kills that guy. And Moses gets found out. And so Moses goes to a place called Midian and becomes a sheep herder for 40 years. Midian is the Hebrew word for Palmdale. It's in the middle of nowhere. So... Moses is a shepherd there for 40 years and then God calls him burning bush and Moses comes to lead the people out of Egypt out of slavery and into God's promise that was given to Abraham remember they will be a people and they will have a place and they will be a blessing to all the nations are you with me so far Moses you've seen the movie either the Disney one or the Charlton Heston one if you're a hundred years old like me and When you see Moses standing before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Your Sunday school teachers should be given a reward. In heaven they will. Let my people go. You think of like strapping young Moses. Let my people go. Moses was 80 when he gave that speech. He was strapping old Moses. He was John MacArthur's age strapping strong John MacArthur. Let's, hey, can we make a little secret between us real quick? Let's never discuss the part that I just said. Okay, so Moses, 80 years old, let my people go. Pharaoh, no, plagues, gives up. Passover lets the people go. All the while Moses wanders in the wilderness and then he gets this really clear revelation on Mount Sinai. God gives him the law, which wasn't a burden for the people, but a joy. Every time God reveals himself to people, it's a blessing. God is letting them know what he expects. And so Moses gives the law to the people and they make a covenant. They say, we're going to do this. And they get up to the edge of the promised land. This is that climactic moment in the Bible. when they are going to receive the promise that God made and they think this must be the time this must be the time when God will bring about the solution to crush the serpent's head just like he promised our first parents now we're here the land the blessing the people let's do this and so Moses says, let's get 12 spies because there's 12 tribes after the 12 sons that you faithfully mentioned a moment ago. And he sends these 12 guys in to the promised land and they come back and they go, it's awesome there. They have grapes this big and milk and honey. Have you ever mixed milk and honey? It's called a latte. It was the first invention of the latte. And so they're so excited about the promised land and they're carrying these huge grapes and they come back and they say, it's just like God said. Well, two of them talked like that. The other 10 were naysayers. They were going, the reason the grapes are that big is because the people are that big. (laughs) They'll eat us alive. We're grasshoppers. Their cities go up to the heavens. Forget about it. We don't want to go in there. And the people in this corporate act of disobedience don't follow God. Instead, they listen to the 10 naysayers. And so because they scouted out the land for 40 days, he banishes them into the wilderness for 40 years so an entire generation would die out. All that's left are the two good spies, Caleb and Joshua, and their elderly leader who's now 120 years old and his name is still? You're doing great. Moses and they are now with the new generation everybody's under 60 young and their toes are on the brink of the Jordan River and the promised land is right there and so Moses preaches sermons to them and that is the book of Deuteronomy see we made good progress what happens after this well first let's look at Deuteronomy 10 And then we'll see what happens from there. Okay? You did good. Thanks for sticking with me. Deuteronomy 10. Moses communicates to these people exactly what God expects from them. And what is it? Well, I think we can look at it in the form of some quick words. First, there's an inquiry in verse verse 12. An inquiry. An inquiry. Look what it says. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require from you? There's a question, and it's an important question. It's the question that we're against tonight. It's the question of what is it that God wants? People have answered this question wrongly to their eternal doom. They think that God is a God who wants a bloodthirsty sacrifice, and so they kill as they see fit. Or they think that God is a God who will approve of their good works, and so they try to earn their way. They imagine what God may be like. Nations had done this for the entire Bible, but now God is telling God's people that he's made a covenant with, that he's given his law to, exactly what's expected of them. This is freshman orientation for Israel. This is a chance for this generation to take the land. And he then lists off these expectations. Look at it on the verse. That's just the, the inquiry with well, a big question. What does the Lord require of you? An ultimate question and a question that's as timely for them as it is for us. What is it that God wants from you? What does God demand from you? What does he want? And I think most Christians would look at the Old Testament and say, well, he just wants a bunch of lambs killed. Well, he just wants us to follow his rules. Well, I think he's angry. I I just want to get to Philippians so I can learn about Jesus because he seems nice. This God looks like Gandalf and acts really mean. That's the conception. But he's about to tell us exactly what God wants. And here's what's so stunning about this. What God says he requires here is no different than what Jesus says he requires here. You see, God hasn't changed. His character is the same. And the requirement is given in five words. Very simply, he says, one, it's to fear God. The inquiry leads to the simplicity of God's demands. First, it says, to fear the Lord your God. And that's something I think that we completely miss because we either say, well, fear is too strong of a word. It really means to hold in high respect. Well, then why doesn't it say hold God in high respect? It uses the word fear. Remember, God is holy. He's demonstrated that with his people as he judged them in the wilderness. He demonstrated that by banishing Adam and Eve from the paradise garden Eden. God is holy. He is to be feared. This means you don't mess with God, that you think highly of God. One of the great motivations that God's people have always used to obey him is because they fear him. In fact, Christians in prior generations, you know what they were known as more often than just being called Christians? They were called God fearers. That's because they knew they wouldn't want to do anything that would provoke a holy God. That would bring shame to their Lord. And so the first thing God requires is that we fear him. This is all over the Bible, from proverbs nine ten The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom to uh, other places in the Bible proverbs one seven uh, psalm one hundred and eleven verse ten. A good understanding is they who have His commandments to fear God, to hold him in high regard, but to also take God seriously, to worship, trust, commit him, to have both reverence and holy terror is the right way to think about god isaiah eight thirteen He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. You don't casually stroll into God's presence. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is God. Our world has all kinds of fears, doesn't it? You know what photophobia is? A fear of light. You can go to psychologists. They'll give you some drugs and you'll be fine. You know what a chlorophobia is? It's a fear of cats. You shouldn't fear cats. You should despise cats. They're disgusting and unacceptable creatures. I'm sorry, that's just distraction. But if you do like cats, I I would like you to try a dog. That's the that's the anyway. uh, Anthrophobia is a fear of flowers. A blutophobia is a fear of bathing, which all freshman boys have. Palladophobia is a fear of bald people. Bald people, are, bald people are nice. But what's missing in our world is a fear of God. And that's why the first requirement that Moses gives is that we should fear God. Because if you fear God, you know that God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. Over and over again, God tells his people as they're about to enter into the promised land, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Be courageous, don't be afraid. He'll say it to Joshua as well. But then he also says what they should be afraid of. They should fear him. You think this is just an Old Testament thing? Listen to Romans eleven twenty two. Note the kindness and severity of God's severity towards those who had fallen, but God's kindness towards you. Provided you continue his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. God is always a God to be feared. You brought up Aslan earlier, so I'll just use that. You remember that great scene when the Beaver family is taking in Lucy and they're they're talking and they have that conversation and she finds out that Aslan's a lion and it kind of freaks her out, and she says, A lion? Is he safe? Is he a tame lion? and Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. We need to ramp up our understanding of the fear of God. We ought to be known, this generation ought to be known as a generation that fears God. The reason you hate sin is because you fear God. Fear is a remedy against presumption. Fear is a prerequisite in working out your salvation. Fear is a preservative against apostasy. Fear is a stronghold for Christians that keeps them safe. So many families have been destroyed by divorce. I know that's personal to so many in this room. But so often... A parent decides to leave the family because he takes God too lightly. So often a teenager rebels against his parents because he takes God too lightly. That's why the fear of the Lord is what God requires. Second, to follow God. It says to walk in all his ways. And this is a requirement that also has to do with how you live. And this one's very practical. To walk is just a very biblical way of talking about how you live. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, teach these things to your children as you walk along the way. It's not just that you have to get your kid and go for a walk and teach them these things. It's just an ordinary way of talking about your whole life is one foot in front of the other. God doesn't want your obedience and your holiness and your fear on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half or at summer camp for one week. He wants your entire life to be a life of walking, of outward behavior, of daily conduct, of discipleship. All God-fearers should be along the way. The Hebrew word is Derek. Derek. Anybody named Derek in here? Good job, Derek. Your name's not Derek. What is it? Michael. That's really not close to Derek. His name is Michael. Michael, you lose 10 points for your team. It's just how I roll. It means way, road, path. And it's a favorite metaphor of the Bible. You walk in your ways. And God wants us to walk in his ways. The third word on this list of five words is to love God. Do you see it there in verse 12? And to love him. It is so crazy to think that the Old Testament is a, is a, is a document of law and of externals. You see, this list has at its center the very most important thing. God calls us to love Him. God places this command in the center and it's the same word God uses for marital love throughout the Old Testament. It's love that is full of affection. It's love that is affectionate and warm. We are to feel something about God. It's why Deuteronomy 6.5 says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Your love for God should surpass every other love this world offers. And this changes not at all in the New Testament when Jesus Says in Luke 14, you must hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and your very life. What does it mean? It means that your love for God should be so supreme that every other love by comparison is like hate. The word love is a love of affection. Friend, I have to ask you this question, and I think it's so basic and it's so important. It's why it's central in this list. Do you love God? Do you? Do you love His Word? Is he the delight of your heart? This is a passionate word, a word of desire, emotion, a lover's love. He demands our allegiance, loyalty, but he also demands our devotion. The Bible is a book full of love. Deuteronomy 7 9 God chose his people because of love Deuteronomy 11 love the Lord your God and keep his charge Deuteronomy 13 uh, the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 the Lord will uh, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live if you love God you will be cold to everything else in this world and everything else that you love in this world will be loved because you love God first you will have a well ordered love life when your love is focused on god fourth word is to serve the lord your god you fear him you follow him you love him and then you serve him from the heart this is the external evidence of a heart attitude of love for god what flows from love is service this is true in a family and this is true in the christian religion If you love God, you will want to serve him. You will want to offer to him praise, offer to him the work of your hands. You will want to live for him because he owns you and you love him. The fifth and final word he gives that shows us what he requires is that we would obey him. It says to keep the Lord's commands and his statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. See, we have such a funny view of the law. We think somehow the Old Testament law is, is bad, it's, it's heavy, it breaks us, it's trying to destroy us, it's trying to make us see how ornery God is, but that's not how anyone who loves God in the Bible talks about the law. Instead, King David will say, oh, how I love thy law. Christians today will say, "Wow, well, the Old Testament, you know, aren't you glad we're under grace? Do you not see that having the law, having what God requires is grace? It is an evidence of grace. When Jesus asks to summarize the law by the Pharisees, he doesn't say it's a bunch of rules. You don't have to worry about it. I'm going to get a New Testament thing going here in a minute. Jesus says the summary of it all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, God's laws, God's rules, God's commandments are not tyrannical rules designed for your pain. That's not what the law was about. It was about a careful, constant attention to God's ways and to follow him. That's the question. What does God require? The simple answer, it's those five words. And at the center of them is love. But there's one more word I want to give you besides inquiry and simplicity it's what this verse ends with and it's the impossibility and to understand that we have to finish the story where do we go from here well from here i think i can summarize it quite simply the people do enter the land under the leadership of someone named yeshua the same exact name that our lord will be given And Joshua leads the people and they conquer the land and they get almost every corner of it and they make a deal with God that they will finish the work and that they will obey him and follow his ways and fear him and love him just as God required, but they don't do it. And after that, there's this sweet story in the Bible about Ruth, and she teaches us something about the power of a redeemer, of being rescued, even though you're unworthy. And then after Joshua and... And Ruth, there's the period of the judges and that time of judges things just got really out of control because people kept sinning and sinning and sinning and they kept looking to the other nations and thinking why don't we have a king and we could be like them instead of following after God and so God sends some judges because they keep getting themselves into trouble and so imperfect guys like Samson become saviors, deliverers they rescue them over and over again and the story continues to unfold as God is faithful God is merciful God is holy God judges sin and the people continue to turn towards him and turn away from him turn towards him and turn away from him and then God finally decides if they want a human ruler so be it and he gives them a king and he is exactly the kind of king that the people longed for he is tall he is handsome he looks just like Josh Petrus but his name is Saul and unlike Josh Petrus, he's a bad dude. He looked like a king on the outside. He acted like the devil on the inside. And so the people's desire for a king like all the other nations crumbles and falls. And then they find this king working out in a sheep fold for his dad. And he has all these brothers who would seem to be much better candidates for king. But it's this little kid that God chooses to show his unguessable ways. And his name was you're doing so good david becomes the greatest king that israel would ever know because he's a king who feared the lord who loved the lord who obeyed the lord who followed the lord who served the lord there was no one like david since the time of moses david was a man after god's own heart but what happened to david he fell into sin and disobedience his kingship wasn't quite enough. And though the people continued to obey God in seasons of offering sacrifices, every time they sinned in ways that they could remember, they would sacrifice these lambs on the day of atonement. They would follow all the rules that God gave Moses about worship. And David wanted to build God a better house instead of this tabernacle that they drug around the wilderness so they could make these sacrifices to remind them that God hates sin, to remind them that they need mercy, to remind them that sin needed atonement. Covering, And they would follow after this king. And God had promised David that his descendants would be a forever kind of king. The kind of king that might just be able to crush that serpent's head. The expectation and hope that they had had from all along. So David has a wonderful son. And he's endowed with divine wisdom. And his name is Solomon. And he's an absolute train wreck because he gives his life up to lust and sin. And it's not until the very end of his life That he sees what a fool this wise man has been. And his son will be worse than Solomon. And so will his son and the kingdom of Israel. This unity, this perfect picture was supposed to be of God's working in this world that was supposed to draw in the nations so that every tongue and every tribe and all these languages would come together and worship the one true God was so ugly and such an embarrassment that they broke into a civil war, north versus south, and then God would drag each one of them through Uh, different conquering nations pagan nations into exile and it seems like the people of god are gone they're sitting on the shores of the river kibar in a place called babylon where nobody speaks hebrew and nobody worships god and they are slaves yet again captured captured yet again it seems like they're all the way back in egypt where is god's promise Where is God's king? Where is God's promised crusher of the snake? Where is God's covering? Where is God's man? And they're out there in exile until God finally does raise up some interesting characters in really dark times, people like Esther and a guy named Nehemiah. And they bring back this little group to God's holy city Jerusalem the place where Solomon built that awesome temple where they used to sacrifice lamb after lamb after lamb and they bring back this fledgling little group and Jerusalem has completely been sacked it's just a pile of stones and all the old people cry that remember stories about what the temple was like and now there's another God over them this massive world power starting to rise in the Greek nations and then in the Roman nation. And they kind of put their little city and their little temple back together with the help even of a pagan king named Herod. And they had been listening to these prophets that were ministering, kind of prophet and king. They'd been making these sacrifices. They'd been hearing from God for all these books of the Old Testament. They'd been worshiping God and singing these songs and waiting and waiting for the expectation that finally a prophet would come, finally a king would come, finally there would be a covering, and that crusher of the serpent would come and they would be the blessing that God always said they would be and it would fulfill all that God had for them. And a hundred years went by and there was no more prophets left and they weren't allowed to have a king because Rome was over them because the Herodian dynasty was over them. Don't worry about it. Google it later. And then another hundred years went by Two hundred years and they hadn't had a prophet come and say thus saith the Lord all they knew was what God expected of them and all they knew is that they kept failing and they kept failing and they kept waiting another hundred years and no prophet came and another hundred years and no prophet came And they studied the scriptures. They studied the writings of the prophets in this time because they were getting nothing new. And so they thought, is there something in there that we're missing? And they started to study passages like Ezekiel's prophecy that promised a new heart. And then they looked way back into the books of Moses and they saw in Deuteronomy 10 this promise of a a kind of circumcised heart, a heart that had been changed. And they started to realize that they had missed this for so long. And so they started to make some reforms. But like all the reforms before, they were perfunctory, they were short-lived. And they just kept wondering, when will God grace us with a prophet? When will we hear from from God again. And as they gathered in their little uh, troubled nation with Roman oppression all around them, and they wondered, will we ever hear from God again? Something happened outside of a little town called Bethlehem. Something involving a man who would be the final and greatest prophet. And something that would happen with his cousin. And it might have something to do with them getting a king back. And them figuring out how God will ever cover up their sin with the blood of bulls and lambs. And it might have something to do with God having a final word for them. A full word for them. And it might have something to do with them finally coming into the promise And experiencing the fullness of this hope that they'd been longing for since banishment from the garden. But we're not to that part of the story yet. But we will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your awesome word and how you unfold your amazing story over time. And repeatedly when we see your requirements, all we see is grace upon grace upon grace. So may we hear those words of circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer and recognize that we need the intervention of a sovereign God. That we need to be changed from the inside out. That we need a savior, a prophet, and a king that we cannot provide but one that must come from you. Help us, oh God, in the matchless name of the great expected one. Amen.